Disability doesn't discriminate, but the government does. If you become disabled and you're over 65 years old, you get less funding than someone who's younger. This simply isn't fair. Even the Aged Care Royal Commission agreed it's time to end age discrimination. Sign the petition at disabilitydoesn'tdiscriminate.com.au. It only takes a few seconds to add your voice and demand action now. Help end the discrimination. Find out more today at disabilitydoesn'tdiscriminate.com.au. Written and authorised by Mark Townend, Spinal Life. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into the Garden of Doom. This week we have Mike Hilliard. And if you don't know who Mike Hilliard is, from Australia by the way, you should know who Mike Hilliard is. Uh, because he has a podcast called The Red Corner. And for my money, and I will confess there's not a lot of it, but for my money, it is the best geopolitical podcast out there. And they cover all sorts of big issues from around the world. When I first was turned on to, I heard the red cord. I'm like, yeah, well, that's probably about Russia or Red China, whatever. I'll give it a try. And the first few shows were about Russia. And then one week I'm listening to Suriname. And so for the first like couple of minutes, I'm like, why am I listening to a podcast about Suriname? And then at the end of the podcast, I'm like, I want to know more about Suriname. So, I, I mean, like everything became fascinating. He gets high-level guests um, from government bodies around the world and think tanks that are, you know, probably almost certainly former governmental people or people who write theses or, you know, give advice for life and write those papers. The people you see on talk shows and whatever, you can hear them. And it's just a great show. I can't commend and. It to you enough, especially those of you who have any interest in uh, the geopolitics, obviously gets a bit into history because it has to. 
Um, and I don't know if you want to be a student of the world without actually studying, be like me, put it on double speed. Uh, once you get used to the, the voice cadence, you know, probably takes about four or five episodes, work your way up to a speed and a half, but you will shortly be impressing your friends with, with things that they don't know in countries they've never heard of and, and start to sound like you're know the difference between employing soft power and hard power and building bridges in cities versus uh, sending cruisers and frigates and, and you'll sound so smart. And, and if you're like me, a small petty man, sounding smart is more important than being smart. So Mike Kelliard, thank you so much for being on the show. Tell the good folks who you are, what you do. So it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So uh, my name is Michael Hilliard. I'm uh, for, for my, uh, former war correspondent, so reporting from front lines around the world in Ukraine and Russia and Central Asia and the Middle East, uh, specializing in those guys. Uh, and we run The Red Line, which is effectively a geopolitics podcast where we do a different uh, different theme every two weeks. So whether it be you know the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict or we're talking about uh, tensions in Cyprus, or we're talking about you know the Turkey influence in Central Asia, or the one that I'm currently in the middle of editing, which is uh, about Oman and the future of the oil industry in that area of the world. Um, so yeah, we type tackle uh, tackle big topics with guys from you know the White House, the Pentagon, CIA, Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, and you know, all the very smart people, and ask them questions. And uh, rather than the usual, you know, why the show exists is. You know, I used to do all this kind of war correspondence. You have 90 seconds of explain the Libyan civil war in 90 seconds. Uh, and it's, yeah, <laughs> you don't learn anything in 90 seconds. So it's, uh, you know, the whole point of the show is we go, it's, you know, an hour, hour and a half and really go into it and explain who, what, where and why and what we see going forward uh, with that particular issue. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's a great synopsis of it. And I promise you folks, it delivers. So what's he doing in the Garden of Doom? That's a good question. Well, I asked and he said yes. And uh, I was pretty excited about that. But there's so many things, as you know, that this this show and, you know, any listener doesn't need to hear me give the origin of the, the story of the name and, and that this is basically my little meandering minds way of learning about things and things I'm curious about and, and without actually reading and studying. Uh, but he, when he agreed, he said, take a look at my catalog of shows and, you know, and, 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 and let me know what you're interested in. And to my dismay, this show has been on a whole lot longer than I know it's been on. And now I'm like, oh, no, I've got 100 episodes I have to listen to in the past because I probably listened to about 20. Um, and uh, there's just so much. Anyway, we narrowed it down to, well, I gave him a list and he didn't cut any of them off the list. So, uh, you know, since I want to get to them and not take up the whole time with me babbling. We're going to start with the one and everybody here knows I'm a little bit obsessed with space, which I'm starting to learn. There's a few other people obsessed with space. Not enough are obsessed with sort of the rules of engagement in space, but one of his shows was on the future of space warfare. And I can't think of a better place to start than with the future space warfare. So tell me, Michael, what did you learn about what is likely to be the future of space warfare? Well, it's another reason for me to you know, take up drinking. It was a terrifying episode <laughs> to start researching into. Uh, effectively, it's it's a forgotten front. You know, people tend to look at space and think of, you know, just going to the moon and, and communications and a few other little bits and pieces, but there is so much tied into space and we really haven't regulated it nearly as well. You know, there's this sort of hope that you can take the, the freedom of navigation, how we deal with, you know, uh, effectively operations in the sea and just plonk it into space. Mm -hmm. But there's so many different factors into this. So even tiny things like, you know, 
were really terrifying. I think the first thing we came across was India recently just tested one of their anti-satellite missiles and blew up a uh, one of their own satellites, and that exploded into thirty thousand little pieces that are now flying way faster than a bullet. And anything it hits, it will just destroy. And it just that raises questions of who can do stuff, who can't do stuff. You know, where is everyone at? You know. It, it did start to open up Pandora's box. Now, right now, you know, the U.S. has always been a big player in this. China's really coming up up the ranks. Russia's coming up the ranks. Uh, and all of them have got very different space doctrines. And I think everyone, as much as sort of on the ground, we tend to look at them and go, space is for science and space is for communication. Every side is militarizing space. Uh, and very few are doing much about it. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's by design, but there's even a bigger question. We can't answer it. That, that no matter what we agree to here within, let's just call, let's just say the atmosphere, uh, because what I learned in, in some, I actually do do some research. I, I pick on myself a lot, but there's not even agreement exactly where the earth's atmosphere and, and like all things in nature, it varies a lot. I think it's something called the, the, the Canaan line, K-A-N. A-A-N, I, I believe was the spelling. Mm -hmm. And it's basically where there where there's no atmosphere. There's sort of like this line, but but it's not a black line drawn in Sharpie. It's it's sort of where air stops. And air doesn't stop evenly. It depends on how where the moon is in position, where the sun is in position, where the other planets are, which how close to the, the bulge of the earth is, where the, the, the tides are, and just just the and probably a, a billion other factors, including dark matter, which we barely understand what it is, how, you know, how close there is to a comet. So uh, anyway, the general consensus seems to be somewhere around, it's either 60,000 feet or 60,000 miles. It, it must be 60,000 miles. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's miles, not feet. Um, it's feet, which I think I'm almost certain it's feet. It, it's got to be. It's, it's feet? Okay. So that would be about... 12 miles, a little bit less than that 12 miles up. Because I know satellites are like 22,000 miles up, something like that. Most of them are, are and and the moon is what, 264,000 miles away, generally and, uh, on average, something like that. Or is it 64,000? You do very well with a pop quiz here. <laughs> well, no, I'm not because I, I, yeah, I, okay, I, I think... I, I'm definitely missing a number. It's either 264 or 64,000, but whatever it is, it's far away. Anyway, the point is, is that people who do know these numbers, who are not me, can't agree on where the atmosphere starts. But once you're out of the atmosphere, does the law of the earth really still apply? And then it does it just become a coalition of the willing? And the coalition of the willing usually depends on, are they going to shoot me down or not? Or if they try, can I shoot them down or not? Or can I take out you know, one of their minor cities and then they tell me, have fun. Enjoy Ganymede. <laughs> so yeah, and this is the, the you know, obviously there's, there's you know there's a lot of uh, discussion on what is high Earth orbit and low Earth orbit and what can be done in there, and that's the one of the sort of first things everyone thinks about with space warfare is the fact that it is a great first strike weapon. You know, right now one of the problems with ICBMs is if, if you're sitting in, in, let's say, Washington, you're the president of the United States, and, and Putin was to flick open the case and push the big red button, you know, you'd have roughly about, you know, depending on who you ask, about an hour to get, you know, just make decisions, get in a bunker, do your thing. You know, that's, you know, a, an hour is a long time in, in reality. That's pretty good, you know. But when it comes to space warfare, effectively, if you are able to launch MIRBs from space, so straight down, 
you've got 90 seconds before impact, which again, completely cuts your ability to do anything. Uh, so it's it's such a devastating first strike weapon. If any, and there's so many things you can do that even just the idea of kinetic weapons, which is effectively dropping a very, you know, very uh, strong just piece of metal down, by the time it hits the ground, it's gathered so much energy, it almost has the sort of capacity of a, a small nuclear weapon without being nuclear. And that's just literally dropping something out of the air. You know, there are so many first strike weapons that can be made in space. And then obviously there's that, that so there's a category of kind of space to ground weapons, then there's space to space weapons. So that can be as sophisticated as, you know, Chinese weapons that have lasers to effectively cut through, you know, other, other satellites that can be as really rudimentary as, as Russian weapons, Russian satellites, which have this ability to grab onto other satellites and, you know, clump onto them and then just throw them back down to, into earth, effectively kamikazing themselves back into the ground. You know, there's also the, then there's also the communication problem that on one front, effectively all of our encrypted stuff goes through these satellites. And if you can get in between, you know, the, let's say the commander on, on an aircraft carrier sending a message who sends it up to a satellite and goes back down to the US command, then you can read his messages if you're good enough. You know, mm -hmm. if you can work that out, that makes it a lot easier to decode. On the other front, you know, all of our, so much of our system relies on GPS. So the Russians have come up with their own version of GPS, effectively the, the Europeans are doing the same, the Chinese are looking down that road. But for instance, if you take a guided missile, so a lot of the US guided missiles, a lot of them need GPS to kind of figure out where they are generally. And if you can get into that, I mean, it was the whole, it was the plot of an entire James Bond movie back in 97, I want to say. You know, it's been a problem in every analyst's mind for that long of if you can mess with the GPS, you can mess with where it hits. And that's, that's a sure. very problematic problem. So there are so many different problems and styles and attacks that you can do in space. And it's just something that no one really wants to get too far into because if we regulate it, you know, if let's say the US were to pass a law and say, hey, space is completely free and we're not going to do anything warfare wise, then what stops China and Russia doing the same? Because they are, you know, they're doing the work in that field as well. So it's a, you know, it's becoming a bit of an arms race. And I think right now the US are still ahead, but Russia's, you know, having the advantage of effectively by just being able to copy what the US is doing. Same with China. So, you know, the US can make huge breakthroughs and jump 10 steps ahead and then eventually Russia and China can copy what they've done and then get, you know, eight steps ahead and the US has to, you know, re-catch up at that point. So it's a, it's a pretty terrifying time for, for space and I think it's longer, you know, as much as, you know, the Trump administration was some, it's quite controversial in some things, having a space force is probably a good idea, but right now it hasn't got none, nearly the funding it probably should, you know, and yeah. whether it be protecting communication lines, you know, whether it be actually figuring out how to prevent, you know, first strikes, whether it be just figuring out what to do about space debris, because there's so many pieces of it. We've almost doubled the amount of space debris up there in the last decade. Um, you know, that's a problem because if we keep having this exponential amount of space debris up there, because one thing hits, you know, for a small little bit off that Indian satellite we talked about earlier, a bolt hits a satellite and that goes right through it because these satellites are incredibly thin. You know, they're designed to be as light as possible. So most of you can kind of you know, put your hand on it and clonk, clonk half the satellite in because they're very, very thin. And having this bolt go through it at, you know, 600, 700 kilometers an hour, just straight through, it'll wreck it and force more space debris, which causes an exponential problem. 
So how do we clean that up and who's going to pay to clean that up? You know, already right. everyone looked at the Indians and went, hey, are you going to clean up the messages made? And they went, well, it's too hard. You know, how can you do that possibly? Exactly. Uh, it really is a, 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 you know, and the, if we, the longer we leave it, the more the harder it gets to effectively try and take off out of, you know, out of orbit and go into this sort of outer space and do, you know, important space work without having a bolt that was knocked off an Indian satellite 20 years ago just go straight through, you know, your, your rocket as you're going up through space. You know, it's a complicated issue and we really haven't looked, you know, looked into it too far because I think everyone's worried that, you know, whatever legal things they pass may only tie one person's hand behind their back. Yeah, there's so many X factors involved in one, I mean, right now, as we're recording, it's, it's the 17th of April. Uh, it was still very much in the midst of the Ukraine-Russia war. We're going to call it a war here because that's what it is, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Russia's not doing so well. Now, they, they can throw more men and bodies, and, and of course they have nukes if they wanted to go insane and possibly d- destroy the world. But their military isn't doing so well. Uh, so maybe, you know, and right now financially they're, they're struggling, but, uh, you know, I, I fully believe that a, a economy that's been mostly black market and also depends on oil, which the world, regardless of anyone's aspirational beliefs, will need for, you know, at least a few decades, will find a way financially probably out of it. Point being is that they probably have some interest in maybe building up this, this part of their armada um, you know, to maybe have supremacy there uh, to save them from the embarrassing, you know, the embarrassment and the losses here on the ground and say, nobody can stop us. The other X factor is private. I mean, SpaceX and, and uh, Bezos and all of these other, well, it's not a whole bunch of them, but there's enough are going into space more than NASA. And they seem to be you know, sort of ahead. And then what happens if the the private companies have are, you know, more powerful, you have these other players, you, you know, even if it's one ship, it can be a, uh, you know, a source of ransom. You don't want your satellites destroyed? You know, give us $1 billion, you know, to have the Dr. Evil thing, another bond stuff. Uh, I joke a lot about that that Mars is not going to be called Mars. It's going to be called Planet Musk, and then they're going then Planet Musk is going to sue us so that we can't call you know uh, Musk can no longer be considered a bad scent. We're going to have to rename Musk oxen and things like that. But there's, there's really no one to stop that from happening, planting his flag. But that's beyond I think the, your scope. But there's there's just so many interesting things there. But there's a stupid show on Netflix called Space Force, and I'm not recommending that anybody really watch it, but in there, there's interesting stuff. So I think that Trump did two things with regards to space that that are impactful, and there might be others, but my research is very sparse. One is like you, I, I agree that Space Force is a good thing, and as much as people laugh at the SDI, Star Wars Initiative from the Reagan administration in the 80s, I bet if we never gave up on it and had something functional now, we'd probably feel pretty good about our, ourselves and maybe NATO and, and allies to the U.S. When I say we, Michael is in Australia, so he's not really part of we, though. You know, we're, we have a close relationship with our countries. So maybe maybe we'd feel a little bit better about things now if there was a fun, functional, you know, probably by now second or third generation SDI up there. Um, but... Um, the, the show Space Force, they actually have scenes where the, the Chinese went up there and they basically 
cut satellites in half and basically laughed at that at Space Force because Space Force couldn't do anything about it. That was a joke. That, but that's that you know that that's not too many steps away from things you were just talking about. Um, and then the other thing the Trump administration did, other than creating the Space Force, and depending on who you are, you might consider this to be good or bad. I think it was bad. Signed an executive order, basically impeaching a, a prior treaty, which the U.S. was not a party to anyway, but basically an ex- executive order saying the United States and private companies in conjunction with the United States can go to other terrestrial objects, including the moon, meteorites, satellites, other planets, and mine them for resources. You can't claim the land, but you can mine them for resources. So, you know, that was sort of the, one of the plot devices in that movie, Don't Look Up. They found a $40 trillion you know, uh, meteorite or asteroid was going to destroy the Earth, but they found out that it was full of these uh, base minerals or elements that, that were needed to make cell phones. And so any plan other than destroying it outright was considered because the, you know, like the the, the Steve Jobs guy sort of ran the world secretly and, and wanted that. So that, you know, and there have been, I've seen stories where they've, they valued meteorites or asteroids at like $60 trillion or, you know, in some cases one was worth like six times more than the entire GDP of the earth. Um, so, you know, piracy and mining and, and, and getting to resources is going to be a real competition. And all of those things are always policed or achieved by military might of, of some sort, force of arms, or at least that's what historic history has taught us. And I, you know, I don't think that we've gotten any better as a people since then. Any thoughts on that? So, yeah, a lot, a lot, so a lot to unpack here, but obviously the, the, a lot of this is about economics and this is what I keep sort of the big flashy term everyone's using at the moment is geoeconomics because, we, you know, as much, you know, I think the best thing I can ever sum it up with is if you can have the best fighters in the world, but if you can't pay to put bullets in their gun, what are they worth? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, economics makes much more impact on, on geopolitics and I think anyone, you know, actually properly realizes. So let's, we'll tackle space mining first. So yes, these, so some of these asteroids are worth just so much at cost, you know, to go, uh, to get them back home, you know, not explode on re-entry and actually get them at a feasible cost. So for instance, it's, you know, it's actually got a lot of parallels with rare earths here, here on, on earth. Effectively, what the problem with rare earths is, isn't that they're actually rare, it's that they're rare in a economical amount. You know, when you look at something like a, you know, neodymium or a thorium or something, you know, quite a lot like that, you know, it's everywhere. There's, it's all over the place. There's heaps in Australia. But, you know, if you dig up a ton of dirt, you might get a gram of this stuff in most places. So you're trying to find places where you get, you know, 100 grams of the stuff rather than one gram. Um, so in these some of the asteroids, there are really good concentrations of some of these rare earths. But getting it here is very expensive. So someone will go, okay, is it worth sending someone out to out to get this satellite and bring it back and or get this sort of asteroid, bring it back and, and try and mine it? Is that going to be cheaper than just pulling 700,000 tons of dirt out to get the same amount of, let's call it neodymium? Um, at this point, you know, it's not economically feasible. But again, space is exponentially improving. Uh, and that's that's the hope is that you know we you know as much as 
you know, I am kind of going, well, it's not a thing now. I think we should be legislating for it now because, you know, this is going to come up and it is going to be a question. And if we have something on the books, you know, for the same reason that, you know, the Arctic coming into, you know, a, a lot of talks at the moment on, on mining and oil rights up in there, and it's the treaties we signed 50, 60 years ago that are effectively the reason we're, you know, not fully exploiting the Arctic as much as we, we, we uh, as much as some people would like to. Same with the Antarctic. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, as for Star Wars, uh, yeah, the SDI was, was a great project, but it hit a lot of the same problems that the, the anti-ballistic missile program did yeah. in the 80s. Effectively, what the anti-ballistic missile program was, okay, for every one of these, you know, for, if you launch an ICBM from Russia, it's going to cost you, let's call it sake of the argument, you know, $40 million. You know, that's pretty, it's an expensive ICBM that you've launched that. The anti-ballistic missiles were ending up being about 12 to 20 times the price of an ICBM. So it either means you need to effectively, you know, blow your budget out dramatically. And they only, and even the best ABMs in the 80s and in the Star Wars era, only had an accuracy rate of around 20 to 30%. Right. Um, so you need to buy, to effectively guarantee that no ICBMs are going to be hitting the ground, you need to spend, you know, five ABMs, which are already at 20 times the price, and you need to buy five of them for every single ICBM you launched you, and it just blows the cost out. And effectively, there is that decision made at high levels going, okay, do we spend, you know, effectively quintuple our, our military budget on ABMs, right. or do we just take the bet that we're not going to get nuked? Right. And that's the same with Star Wars. It was a fantastically great program, but for the what you pay for it, whew, it's very expensive with a fairly low accuracy rate. And that was one of the things that killed Star Wars. Um, would we be able to do it these days? It's still very difficult to hit a, uh, you know, hit a missile as it flies. Yeah. Even if we could, now we're getting into the age of hypersonic missiles where even our best anti-ballistic missiles are missing them. So... You know, if we were to put all our eggs into the into the SDI basket, get that you know get that back on the road, start to do this, we would be twenty years to get it to where it probably needs to be. And by that point, hypersonic missiles have already taken off, and we would have to go back to the drawing board and start again. You know, I think the economist in the room has just gone, okay, look, the chance of us being nuked, if look, if we're going to get nuked, we're not going to get them all anyway. Someone's going to get hit. I don't really think it's it's a good idea because again with particularly anti-ballistic missiles, you have to redo them and update them and there is expiry dates on these things. So if you buy this hugely expensive project and it doesn't do anything for 10 years, you then just throw them in the bin. And it was a very expensive project that the accuracy wasn't that great mm. and it was, you know, it didn't, it wouldn't have done anything. So again, it's a great idea that the, you know, the, all the defense guys will go, yep, I love it, let's do it. And then the economists in the room will go, mm, nah, um, which is, I think... <laughs> The, the most powerful, uh, the most powerful general in the United States Army is the guy who runs Microsoft Excel. Yeah, yeah <laughs> well, the, the arms uh, race never ends. The, you know, you, the, it, nobody, you can run out of money for the arms race, but you can't. But you never run out of breath for the arms race. Um, I don't know. The economists in the room, listen, they're making a lot of sense, except if you live in New York, Washington, <laughs> you know, or any of those, you may say, yeah. I mean, you know, if you, if if you destroy Manhattan, that's uh, that that's more than forty billion. So, uh, you know, so I don't know. Maybe the other economists should have been there. Anyway, what, what what's done is done. That, that's the yeah. trouble. The Russians though, will, will, the Russians will make that calculation though and go, okay, look, fantastic. You guys bought four ABM systems uh, to protect New York. 
we're just going to send four ICB right. four rather than two ICBMs at New York because we can make them for one twentieth the price. Right. Well, for the same reason that already we have them. supply javelins to. Yeah, we supply. You know, you know, particularly in sort of economics of warfare, it's a you know. We view it as a good idea when you launch a javelin that come, you know, is a hundred twenty thousand dollar missile at a, you know, eight hundred thousand dollar tank. We view that as fantastic. We've just cost the enemy seven hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, you know, in net, and that's effectively how space warfare is looked at as well. So if they go, okay, well, we can pay this much, but the enemy can just double the amount of ICBMs for one sixtieth the price, then yeah, we're not, you know, he's just going to bleed us dry. Um, so it's it's a real. Yeah, it's a, it's a economist looking at a, at a defense problem. I am not sure if that's good news or bad news. I sort of think it's good news because <laughs> if everything boils down to economy or uh, economics, economics, it's very terrestrial. It's something. It's something that logic can dictate. Then, of course, you always have to worry about your irrational players. But this is not a philosophical show this week, though it has been in the past. So. Okay, so the, the the future of space warfare is sort of wide open, and we're right there now. I, I would just suggest to the world that the, 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 the failure to plan is a plan for failure, and that the, that even if SDI wasn't a great idea then, probably it would have been tweaked and, and been okay now. I I hear the voices and voices of and, and typing on Twitter right now say, yeah, but there's homelessness and there's housing and healthcare and there's and I understand there's there's always competing interests, uh, you know, and then but the history of mankind has shown there's always some type of armed conflict or economic conflict enforced or protected by arms and uh, that's always you know the first order of the state is to protect the state. Um, so that, that's just, that's sort of like a, well, our Canaan line, my Canaan line, uh, view of, of the world. Uh, and then you try to fix other things, that, you know, that you can. All right. We're not going to solve that here, but do you have any con- conclusory statements on the future of warfare in space? Um, or do you think that we've covered it all pretty well? First of all, I love the word economic conflict. I'm uh, 100% going to steal that. That's a, a great word I've never heard before. Uh, I think space warfare is going to come more and more into, into fruition, and it's going to become a, a uh, much more thought about, like just the same way that air, the Air Force was thought about, you know, back in the year, sort of uh, during the First World War and afterwards. You know, right now it's a side project, and the Air Force guys are like, oh, yeah, it's that kind of thing we do, but very soon it will become much more of a important factor, particularly how reliant we are on satellite communications, that's increasing. You know, we are seeing, particularly in places like Africa, where they're just skipping past the, uh, effectively the phone lines version of communications, they're just skipping straight to the 4G and satellites, um, because that's much easier for most people in that region of the world to use, and that'll, again, make more, more, more people shift down that road, you know, which means satellites are more important. And again, the US is, has to plan for this because humans are panicky people. Um, and it is a, a, you know, a worry of what will happen if, if our satellite, all our GPSs or all our internet goes out all at once is a pretty terrifying situation. Even when you look at sort of the new statistics on when power goes out, murders spike. Um, and that's yeah. just the power going out, let alone communications. You know, it's a, a, a real classic example we all get taught in, in sort of to understand sort of how panicky humans are is Y2K, um, you know, you could do all this prep for Y2K to make sure everything was, you know, fine. The, the particularly the sort of water and power guys did a lot of work to make sure everything was fine. 
But then there's a problem of at 11.55, everyone goes, what if it's not? I should probably fill the bathtub and make sure I have a, a bathtub full of water, just in case. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's right, but just in case. But then everyone has that same thought. And at 11.55, everyone fills their bathtub. And what happens, the municipal water supply is not designed for everyone to fill their bathtubs all at once. So some people turn the taps on and no water comes out, which then starts panic and, oh, my God, this is it, the end of the world, and people start looting and going crazy. You know, we saw that in a lot of places all over the world. And that's the kind of, even when you do all the right things, you have to account for how panicky humans are. So having fail-safes in our communications, in our, uh, our way of effectively doing banking particularly, is very much required because even if we have a, yep, okay, we, we think this is fine in normal conditions, normal conditions aren't always guaranteed. That is for sure, yeah. Uh, normal is not nearly as normal as we'd like to pretend that it is. Um, as far as economic warfare is concerned, you're, you're free to it. I don't think I could trademark it anyway. It, it seems like it would be merely descriptive. Uh, but let's just say that my trademark is asserted for the United States. Your trademark can be asserted for uh, Australia and, uh, and what, whatever zone of intellectual property law covers Australia. If I don't know if it goes as far as New Zealand or, or not. I know you guys have a shared military. We'll get hats and, we'll get hats and mugs. <laughs> well, I mean, well then, then it's official, we'll right? We'll get them some hats and mugs. Okay, well. Done. You'll you'll have to you'll have to send me a, a free hat and mug for my that's my commission because um, I love coffee mugs uh, who doesn't all right so we're gonna move down to the earth uh, but we're gonna be visiting some old friends or maybe for some of you some new friends so we all know the Soviet Union broke up it ended formally in 1989 and then a bunch of countries sort of uh, declared their independence throughout the 90s, one of which is Ukraine, which is invaded now. And then there are all the stands. Now, in the stands, we we loosely don't include Pakistan or Afghanistan in those stands because we all grew up. Well, I'm 53, so I grew up though they existed. Um, Kurdistan is not, it's more of an aspirational country, not exactly clear where its borders are. That could probably be its own shows itself. Probably it could be its own show in Turkey. It could be its own show with regards to Iraq. It probably could be its own show with regards to Syria. It probably could be its own, own show with regards to the history of who are the Kurds and where they come from. And it's totally going to be just not this show. But when I talk about the stands, I'm talking about Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, which for years I thought that's where the Kurgan came from, from Highlander. No, Kurgan is apparently a death mound, a burial mound. So that's where the word Kurgan came from, which may have come from Kyrgyzstan. Maybe the Kurgans did this. I don't know. There's Turkmenistan, which has uh, probably one of the world's kookiest, uh, if not dangerous, uh, despots in the world who manages to build giant statues of horses all over the country and does... Uh, incredibly unimpressive feats of strength in front of his cabinet who applaud him voraciously. It is fantastically scary because it's real and you would think it's it's a bad uh, Austin Powers comedy, but no, it's real. So the stands, if you can take us, uh, give us a 10,000 foot view of the stands, who are they? What are they thinking about? Are they more concerned about Russia? Are they more concerned about China, Iran, uh, a caliphate? All of the above, none of the above. Jeff, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, what's up with the stands? So obviously, you know, the, the stands are an incredibly interesting region of the world that no one pays any attention to. And this is actually my specialty is the uh, is the stands. Yes. So effectively, 
all five of the, the, the stand countries are, you know, effectively very different. They all have similar ideas and similar, you know, cards they're playing with, but all of them are very different. The big sort of, if we go 20,000 feet view of this is that Russia and China right now are competing for influence in the stands. You know, right now it's a lot of, Russia is the cultural kind of uh, hegemon, wherein China is the money hegemon, and they're putting a lot more money into the region for a number of reasons. We'll go through that in a bit. But to kind of give you a really quick, you know, overview on the five stands. So Kazakhstan's the the big brother. Uh, it's the kind of, if the stands were a family, Kazakhstan is the one that became an accountant and got a job. It's the <laughs> most pro-Russia of, uh, debatable, but it's, it's very pro-Russia. Uh, there's a large minorities of Russians in the north. They have lots of oil and gas, and the Russian space program is based out of here. Um, they're recently effectively going through a, a just a giant, uh, pretty close to a revolution at the start of the year. Um, you know, we, in a really, really short way, they had a president, Nilsson uh, Nazarbayev, who effectively had been in since the Soviet days, uh, who has been, you know, he was in charge, he was so corrupted in charge of everything, and, and you know, he got removed from power under protests. So as he left, he uh, had the capital renamed after him and also decided to give himself this title of father of the people, uh, which means he's exempt from all, all past and present crimes, which is very handy for that man. Then um, he picked his successor, Tokayev, who's the current president of Kazakhstan. Tokayev is, you know, was seen by many as a puppet. And Nazarbayev was still kind of pulling the strings because he was still on the National Security Council. You can't get, he can still, you know, Nazarbayev, who was effectively an ex-president now, still had rights to veto any government appointments. It was a really weird system. So Kazakhstan is effectively trying to, you know, de-Nazarbayev a lot of its government. And we've seen that in the recent protests, but there's still protests bubbling away. There's still power outages throughout the country. There's still this... You know, where China's put a lot of money into Kazakhstan and they do kind of look to China to keep that, that, you know, as the big market for their gas and their oil. But Russia is still the, you know, the friend. A lot of your goods come from Russia. If you go to a bar, it's full of Russians. You know, when you go through that region, I speak, you know, I speak Russian. You know, you can almost guarantee that when you start speaking Russian, they'll respond in Russian, mm. which is, you know, a really interesting place to be. Also, don't mention Borat. They, the two fastest things in the world are the speed of light and how fast a Kazakh will tell you it was filmed in Romania. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kazakhstan is definitely the richest and it's the one that kind of oversees the others. And that's a really awful way to say that, but it kind of is. You know, if So everyone looks to Kazakhstan to be the stable one. But the trouble is that, you know, be as bad as presidents are in Kazakhstan, there's no, there's almost no opposition. That's something we're really common throughout four of the five stands is you have this kind of guy who is 80, 90% of the vote and then a couple of guys below are five to six. Because what it does is it means that everyone panics and goes, well, if we get rid of the president, then who the hell is going to be president? And it becomes a nasty free-for-all with all the oligarchs. So everyone kind of goes, well, I don't like him, but at least it's stable. And that's, I guess, the, the over, that's a very 10,000-foot view of the entire region is people like stability. The devil I know. If we then go to Uzbekistan, the devil I know is a really good way to put it. When it comes to Uzbekistan, they're actually starting to, they've now got this, uh, Uzbekistan was really, really closed off from the Karimov, uh, and it's now got uh, Shavkat Murzioyev in power, uh, who effectively is trying to reform the country, trying to open it up, trying to encourage tourism. He just banned slavery uh, two years ago, uh, and he's finally had the cotton you know, deslavified effectively. Nice uh, move, be a huge move for Uzbekistan. Who, who, <clears throat> yep. who were the slaves? 
So effectively, the government would, to get the cotton production to where it, one they wanted it to be, they would just effectively go to all the workplaces and grab people and say, hey, you are now working on the cotton fields for four months. So their own uh, students, people were... Doctors, teachers. So, so their own citizens were temporary. It was slave labor, but it, it wasn't... You weren't yeah, born a so slave. So effectively, you... you still it's terrible. Almost, they, a lot of people would pitch it... It's very terrible. A lot of people would pitch it as natural service, but it is much more akin to, you know, the rich people could almost bribe their way out of it and mm-hmm. have someone do their thing for them, but, you know... It wouldn't be a, a, you know, an unusual thing for them to go to a university and go, "Hey, this entire class of engineers, you now lost six months. Let's go make, let's go pick some cotton." Um, but they were not like importing. Just a, they weren't importing people from you know around the world. I mean, it wasn't like the transatlantic African slave trade, or they weren't like uh, bringing no. in low wage work. Their, it was for their own people. I mean, still awful, uh, absolutely, you know, mm. medieval. Um, yeah. or, it doesn't compare to the US slave trade 100% I fully agree with that but it's you know there is no other way to put down the word of what was happening there right. you know? gotcha. so then we move to, to so Uzbekistan is the most populous of them uh, and it's the you know it's right now in a bit of a struggle with it has lots of gas but waters were starting to become a problem there's you know uh, but they, they're trying to be the leaders of the region they want to be the new Kazakhstan uh, which is great. You know, the more progressive, the more forward those guys look, the better it is for the entire region. But again, we're still dealing with, you know, a lot of the oligarchs are still guys left over from the, um, from the Karimov era. You know, their reforms are slow, take time. Yeah, so that's Uzbekistan. When it comes to Kyrgyzstan, that's the only democratic one of the five stands. Uh, and it's also the reason the five stands are probably not democratic because Kyrgyzstan has this just rotation of, you know, where someone gets elected and then they go through, you know, things get bad and then they have a revolution and then a strong man comes into play and then he go and then he gets unelected and then we have the same cycle again and again and again. So we've seen, I think, four revolutions since Kazakhstan, since Kyrgyzstan gained its independence in, uh, you know, at the end of the Soviet era. Which again, for a lot of Kyrgyz citizens, is not great. It's no. it's the second poorest. It's very mountainous. Uh, it's cold. There's not power everywhere. And and the big sort of story going on at the moment is the Kyrgyz have effectively nationalised uh, the biggest gold mine in the country, which was owned by a Canadian company. So they've gone, no, nope, too bad. We're taking this all for ourselves. Uh, and that's scaring away a lot of outside outside investment. Absolutely. Uh, Did they, the Canadians apologise? They also started buying a lot of. Did the, did the Canadians apologize anyway? They're so polite. <laughs> hey, I have a Canadian passport, so I'll apologize to Kyrgyzstan. So, sorry, <laughs> Kyrgyzstan. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the Kyrgyz are starting to get closer. They're very close with China. Uh, and to give you an idea, Kyrgyz surveillance uh, goes through Beijing servers. Mm. You know, if you want to, if a CCTV in, in Bishkek will go to Beijing and come back, um, when you go to Xinjiang and, and the sort of western bits of China, all the security uh, infrastructure is the same as it is in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Russia is, you know, uh, you know, China is still putting lots and lots of money in the building roads and doing the thing, but there's a lot of xenophobia creeping in in Kyrgyzstan. You know, there's a lot of anti-China sentiment because they're going by things in a very much do what I say uh, way of doing things. So that's a that's a huge issue boiling away at the moment. The 
big sort of story at the moment is obviously Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, who are, you know, heading down the, the path of war with each other. Um, in fact, we had a big border skirmish last week um, where a few people died and we're seeing Kyrgyzstan effectively buy in all these Turkish drones, uh, start to do a lot of military cooperation with the Turks uh, and doing things pretty antagonistically, you know, because Stalin drew the borders of these places, he drew them just, you know, yeah, there are seismographs that are, are better equipped to draw borders than what Stalin did in this region of the world. You know, you've got Tajiks, you know, living inside Kyrgyzstan, you've got bits of Tajikistan inside Uzbekistan that are surrounded by Kyrgyzstan. It's a nonsense. Um, now, Kyrgyzstan is starting to rename a lot of these Tajik towns into Kyrgyz heroes, uh, which is obviously ruffling the feathers of Tajikistan. Because Tajikistan, out of the five stans, the Tajiks are the only ones who aren't Turkic. They're probably closer to the Iranians in ethnically than any of the others. So we're starting to see Kyrgyzstan start to beat the drum against Tajikistan. And that worries a lot of the Central Asia analysts watching. Tajikistan is in this very weird place. Yeah. So Tajikistan is in this weird place at the moment that they've had a president since 94, Ebermali Rahman. You know, they've got the whole east of the country, which is effectively going into... A, a low-key, low-boiling revolution at the moment. Uh, they've also got, you know, it's very poor. It's incredibly poor country. Um, and most of their money comes from, you know, citizens who send one member of their family to go work in Russia as a street sweeper or a gutter cleaner or something like that who sends, you know, their money back from Moscow to Tajikistan. And that's actually the major bit of their economy. Wow. So Russia can effectively go, well, let's cut tourist visas, and then boom, Tajikistan has no economy overnight. So they desperately have to keep nice with Russia. But Tajikistan is on the border with Afghanistan, and that's where everyone pays more attention to it because Tajikistan has always been looked at by the Russians as the sort of the, you know, the fence around the swirling pit of doom is how a Russian officer once described it to me. Um, you know, They've have, the Russians, even with Ukraine going on at the moment, have still kept all of their troops in Tajikistan that they had because they are terrified of extremism creeping out of Afghanistan and into the Central Asian republics. China as well. So China is, as much as they talk about, we're not going to put bases overseas, we're not like the Americans, they put, you know, I'm using inverted commas here, but border patrol posts in, <laughs> in Tajikistan um, because they're desperately worried about extremism getting out of Afghanistan and Tajikistan as well. And it's a very weird, pragmatic way that most of the heroin that comes out of Afghanistan comes through Tajikistan. But the Chinese are so odd at the moment that they will allow the heroin to come from Afghanistan, get to the border, and they will allow the heroin to cross the border as long as it's not an Afghan who takes the heroin across the border. They're like, look, we're happy for the heroin to come across, just don't, don't, just don't bring extremism. And they go, yeah, sure, okay. And they switch to a Tajik man, and a Tajik man takes you know, the rest of the way. It's a very odd country. Um, so then the last one is to, to Venezuela, which recently went through, uh, had an election a little while, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. Yeah. Good for them. Um, and they've finally removed the, the weird strongman you were talking about. So his name is Gurbanguly Burdi Mohamedov. That's a tongue twister and a half. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a terrible name. He's, he's an odd dude. So effectively, Turkmenistan is, is before him was ruled by a guy named Tukmanbashi. Um, who effectively was father of the Turkmen. He wrote, you know, things like he changed the, you know, the, the months of the year to his dog's name, his wife's name, <laughs> yada, 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 and, and wrote this book called The Ruchnama, which is amazing. It's this disgusting pink and, and uh, green-looking book, which is, you know, 
a book of poems written by Turkmenbashi. So when you get your, you, when you used to go get your driver's license in Turkmenistan, it would be, you know, rather than do you turn left or right at a stop sign, it'd be when Turkmenbashi went to the lakes, how many stones does he throw into the lakes? <laughs> um, it's a very weird system. So, you know, when he die, when he dies, this accountant effectively comes into, you know, all the oligarchs going, yeah, let's go, let's go with, you know, Berdi Muhammadov, which is this accountant guy, which is the weird guy who loves horses and holds sticks above his head. And, you know, he kind of just is a weird dude and they put him in power. And now he's given it to his son, which is the first time we've seen that in Central Asia, where his, where it, it's dynastic, you know, effectively. He had this election where, you know, his son was running under the Turkmen People's Party and then, you know, the second place candidate was running on a, yes, my party is good, but the president's son is way better. Please vote for him. And the third party would say pretty much the same thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's less than democratic, to put it mildly. Right. Uh, but they're sitting on one of the largest gas reserves in the entire world. Um, you know, they can connect up to the European pipelines with 30 extra kilometers of pipe across the Caspian Sea. They can, if they can get a pipe going through Afghanistan, they have enough to supply all of India. Uh, again, that's a big if. Um, you know, right now they're selling lots and lots of gas to China. So it's a small, very poor country that's really intensely governed. Um, you know, yeah, effectively, people, the police will regularly stop you on the street and go through your entire phone and arrest anyone they think may be, you know, uh, critical of the Turkmen government. You know, it's the, out of all the stands I've spent time in, Turkmenistan is the only one that everyone went, you know, be careful what you say in the hotel room because, right. then, you know, you can... You know, you can be in Kazakhstan, you can talk smack about Tokayev and, you know, people will go, that's fine. Obviously, if you do it publicly and you're, you're a Kazakh person, that's a different story. But as a journalist, you can get away with a lot. In Turkmenistan, they will genuinely arrest you if you talk smack about him in, in the hotel room. So it's, it's a weird country. Not good. So that's kind of the, the very overview of, of the stands. Are these countries, I mean, is am I right to say these countries are generally, and like all of the stand countries, they're generally Muslim? It's very weird because it's a, it's ex-Soviet Muslim because again the Soviets banned uh, you know banned religion right. effectively. So you know as much as there are, are mosques in most of these countries and they are like extensively Muslim, it's very light Muslim. It's the same way that kind of a lot of Americans might treat you know treat religion. You know, probably better than Australians treat religion that you know they might they observe on the Muslim holidays, but it's really it's not a big part of their life. Like it's, you know, it's not unusual to have, you know, pork in your, in your food. It's not unusual to have, you know, uh, you know, extremism isn't much of a thing. It's starting to creep up in Tajikistan, uh, but Tajikistan is starting to really clamp down. In fact, there was a period there where if you had a beard that they would regularly pull you off the street and shave you because they were worried that that would cause extremism. It's like the Yankees. Um, it's a weird, again, it's an odd country. <laughs> the New York Yankees, George Steinbrenner said no facial hair. I'm sorry, I'm talking to you about nonsense. Really? Yeah. I, I, did, I didn't know about that. Yeah, um, it was a big thing. Wade yeah, Boggs so had to shave his mustache. Like a, like... <laughs> I do remember that, but I remember the Boggs stuff. Um, but yeah, it's nothing like a Turkey or Iran or where religion plays a very large role. It's a, it's a role, but again, it's more nationalism plays more of a role than religion does. So that's starting to change. You know, the, we're starting to see more people turn toward religion. And Islam is growing quite quickly in, in these countries, but it's still way below. And we see that with most of the ex-Soviet countries, apart from maybe Azerbaijan, that kind of, you know, if you've taken three generations of people and you've taken a religion off them, uh, yeah, it's it's 
always going to dampen the next couple of generations of religion. And at the same time, a lot of these dictators don't want religion to be too much of a factor. You know, for the same reason Tajikistan will allow, you know, allow mosques and allow people to preach and do their thing. But it very much is a, okay, as long as you keep saying, you know, Allah is great, but so is Emamali Rachmaninoff. <laughs> then, then it's okay. It's, it's... You know, make sure that the state stays where it is. And if you go against that, then you're going to have trouble. As long as you're nice to us, we'll be nice to you kind of situation. Um, you know, for Turkmenistan, they were willing to let the Quran go in as long as the Quran was read as well as the Rukhanama. And, you know, you, Muhammad said this, but Turkmenbashi would have said this, and Turkmenbashi is probably the right correct. You know, it's a, the it's a module system, and religion is not played for people. Uh, a brief, hopefully it's a brief uh, follow-up question on that. Okay, we, we covered Islam now. What if you were Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, you know, anything else? Is, is it the same that's, that's sort of accepted as long as you're not too blatant about it and you still praise, I'm sorry, I can't say the name of the leaders. I have their own enough practice. But is it, is it, is it sort <laughs> no of like... Can. It's the only reason I got a job in the region. <laughs> well, there <laughs> you go. Say the names. Excellent. Um, you found yeah, the one, like you a, found the key. The nicest people... The nicest people in the entire world are the Kazakhs. You know, it is really unusual that, you know, every time I've got to Kazakhstan and if I pull, if I look lost for more than about 10 seconds, someone will come up to me and ask, hey, you like, you look like you're not from around here. Can I help you? Like, do you want me to like, you know, you can tether to my phone and order yourself an Uber or do you want me to order before you? Like everyone in this region is ridiculously lovely. I mean, it's ridiculous. They have Ubers in Kazakhstan. I mean, that's just amazing to me. Actually, the other one in Kazakhstan, you can pretty much just stick your thumb out uh, and someone will pull over and go, hey, where are you going? And I go, oh, I'm just going uptown. And they go, yeah, jump in. I'm in that way anyway. Um, it's a very it's like, yeah, lovely place. Wait till they get a serial so, killer. You know, <laughs> when it comes to other religions, they're pretty tolerant. You know, again, it's, you know, to obviously there, there are always bigots in every country. There are always sure. extremists in every country. And I'm sure if you go right out to the sticks, you're going to get some hardcore people. But right. generally, you know, it's if you if you're Christian coming in that you know religion I don't I don't think I made quite a few trips to that region of the world I don't think I've ever been asked my I've ever been asked about my religion it's it's not part of the national identity gets along and it's it, 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 it it's really not high up the priority list for these guys um, you know it is starting to be I'm sure that you know I haven't been to the region in two years obviously with COVID um, but I'm sure that my next trip there at the end of this year will probably end up I'm guessing someone might ask but it's not. Yeah, definitely not the first thing people ask. They're more likely to ask you what your favorite football team is or, uh, you know, what your favorite brand of vodka is. Okay. Oh, well, geez. I, I would probably say the Baltimore Ravens would be like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'd be like, I don't drink potato alcohol. <laughs> and they'd be like, get out! <laughs> Throw me a lake by Kyle. Um, <laughs> all right, so now most of these countries are Turkic. And actually on this show, one of the things that we have explored is the Turkic people's and the Iranic people. So if you're curious about that, the, I did a show with uh, J.P. Bristow, and it was, uh, what the name of his podcast is, The History of the uh, Russia, Empire of Russia, or The People of the Russian Empire. That's the name of the episode. And uh, and Darius Kamali's is the Persian version. So if you're interested in hearing about the Turkic peoples and the Iranic peoples, those both of those are covered pretty well with a little bit of overlap and maybe even a little, some conflicts, obviously from the two different perspectives. One was more Turkic, one was more Iranic. Point of this is, is that 
They're mostly Turkic peoples where you hear Turkic, you hear Turkmenistan, and you hear Turkey. And it might surprise some people to learn that, that but not listeners of this show, who've been doing it for a while, that, that the Turks in Turkey are, are a rather modern uh, phenomenon, but nonetheless, Turkey is largely Turks at this point, and they have some interest. Uh, they're an emerging power. They have their own um, sort of strongman. They're strangely in NATO, and I, and I think they're also in the EU, but they're a predominantly uh, Muslim country. Uh, it, it, they have their own little strange dynamic. They're, in some ways, Turkey may be the key to, to the, uh, the old geopolitical of the world and, and the near term. But what is, what's Turkey's view towards these stands? Are they their cousins, their brothers? Are they, are they tools, all of the above, none of the above? So Turkey is a really interesting country. You can do entire books on Turkish geopolitics. But effectively, to really condense it down, Turkey, you know, at the end of the Ottoman Empire under Ataturk, so Ataturk is the father of modern Turkey. Very impressive. Like every shop you ever go to in Turkey, there'll be a photo of Ataturk somewhere in the place. Just he is a very, very important person in Turkish history. He's Ottoman, right? He always wanted to look toward the West, you know, he was the he was he was the first of the Turkish Republic. So he was an Ottoman general who ended up effectively when the Ottoman Empire fell apart and we made the modern Turkish state. He effectively took over and you know knocked out what was left of the Ottomans and became you know the first president of Turkey. And he really wanted to look towards the West. You know he was one of the very first in even Europe to have women go to university quite frequently. He was very big on on women's rights and equality and you know separating religion from uh, from the state, which is you know, that was his big thing. It's mm. like church is one thing, state is another. I don't care what religion you are. It depends on how good an accountant you are. You know, it, it was great. Fantastic. Big fan of uh, Kamal Ataturk. You know, effectively, Turkey, since Ataturk has been going more towards a religious path, but the important overlining theme here is Turkey wanted to be part of Europe. Now, it has applied for EU membership many times, but the EU keeps roadblocking it, but particularly when it comes to Greece, France, and Germany who don't want Turkey in, in the EU. You know, they've just, you know, there's some racist reasons, there's economical reasons, there's religious reasons, a whole bunch. But everyone, you know, they effectively put 50 stipulations that Turkey needs to do, and Turkey's out about four of them. So Turkey can't join the EU. And but after effectively, you know, Angela Merkel and a few other, you know, uh, big EU leaders went, yeah, we're not going to do it. Uh, Turkey's now gone, okay, well, Europe's not going to be our friend. Let's look elsewhere. So they've been very busy in the Middle East. So they're right now fighting wars in, in Libya and operating in Somalia and operating in, uh, you know, throughout, you know, helping out in Yemen and Azerbaijan and all these places. Now, that's great. The Middle East has been good, but they really want to get some extra friends and resources and that looking elsewhere, they seem like the Central Asians might be a low-hanging fruit. The trouble is the Turkish economy is not particularly strong at the moment. So it can't buy their way in like the Chinese. And with the Russians, you know, the Russians are still the, you know, overall kind of uh, lingua franca. You know, the, the Uzbeks might speak Uzbek, the Kazakhs can speak Kazakh, you know, but everyone speaks Russian. You know, it is the, it's the one language you can get around the whole region. In. Whereas yeah. Turkey, apart from in Turkmenistan, Turk, Turkmen and Turkish are like, um, you know, I think we are trying to find a good comparison here. Portuguese and Spanish? They're almost the same. Kind of, yes, yeah, that's, that's a really good comparison. Portuguese and Spanish. They're like, they're not the same, but you can kind of yell at each other and you kind of get what you're saying, you know. Uh, but so Russia still has cultural, you know, people still watch Russian movies, 
people still, you know, listen to Russian music. You go to, you go to a nightclub in, you know, in the back end of Tajikistan and it's still going to be Russian music blaring at you. Uh, Turkey hasn't got that cultural thing in yet. They're trying to, and they really want to pitch themselves as in the sort of the, the tussle between China and Russia inside Central Asia. They want to be the tiebreaker. Yeah. You know, they want to be the, whoever I throw my weight behind will be the, the, the victor here. Because they're coming in not being like Russia saying, well, you know, we are the military might and we can crush you all with our tanks, which is, you know, <laughs> a bit debatable. Right. Uh, or China going, you know, hey, we pay, we pay for this road, do what I say. They want to be the nice guys coming in. And they're doing really well, but it's still a long way to go to sort of deep, deep you know, wedge of the Russians and their cultural influence in there. And the Turkish economy is not particularly strong. So as the Turkish economy is shrinking, they're tending to focus more on projects in the Middle East and in North Africa. By the way, if I find myself in these stands, what vodka should I say is my favorite and what football club is the safest? <laughs> well, that very much depends on where you are. Mm. Um, again, ask them what they drink and just go, yep, that's my favorite. <laughs> that is so smart. That's got to be a journalist trick. That's great. That weapon. <laughs> now, is it okay if they ask you what's your favorite um, football yeah, team yeah. to go? I'm, I'm just, I'm an American. We don't do soccer. Is that, is that okay? We go, yeah, American's stupid. No, again, it's not a, it's not like you know, my, I'm, I'm married to a, to an uh, English woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we actually, what your football team is really matters there. You mm -hmm. know, but when it comes to the the stands, everyone's kind of really relaxed about everything, particularly if you're a tourist, because there's so little tourism there, and you know they all look at you as just a bag of like, oh my God, this is foreign capital coming in. Awesome. Okay. Um, you know, it's not unusual that you bump into someone at a bar and if you speak even rudimentary Russian, you'll get invited to hang out with them all night. <laughs> I, I don't, they pretty much it's any night I've ever gone out in any of these stands, I will end up making 10 or 15 friends who will show me around and buy me drinks and re recommend some restaurants and, and you know, everyone is ridiculously nice and i'm not being paid by the Kazakh tourism board here i just want to stress that um it's just a, a bit of a hidden gem of a country okay. um, you know obviously there are bad bits of it you don't want to go out, out to you know Zhenozen and uh or right out west but you know generally even in the you know i was a warlord correspondent for a long time and I, I think the one thing that connects people is even when you talk to members of the taliban or you're in the real nasty bits of the war everyone just wants to bitch about the wi-fi signal talk about their mother-in-law and effectively just you know, talk like most people are pretty friendly and, you know, unless you get down that road of conversation, most people just want to talk nonsense with you. By the way, if anyone from the Kazakh tourism board is listening, I'm willing to be bought. Uh, I'm just looking for a modest honeymoon. <laughs> so it, it's fine. I, you know, he is a journalist. He can't be bought. His ethics are not for sale, <laughs> at least as far as we know in this show. Mine everything's true. You could put a billboard on my back if you want to. Okay. So just, that's just listening. Just, just think, just think about it. All right. So we know where Turkey is. We, we've sort of heard about Russia and China here. Uh, let's move to Russia and China sort of in the developing world writ large. I imagine it's a similar strategy because countries tend to have one playbook they go by, but we've heard a lot about China uh, in South America, especially the Western Pacific. And we hear about Russia and China, both of them, in Africa, both these countries probably have a lot of uh, natural resources, minerals, gold, metals. Uh, you know, they, they, they've both been exploited horribly. Uh, they have generally not so great governance and or combination of poverty and disease where this kind of economic infusion, which is backed by 
medicine and capital and and you know temporary or otherwise it it, it, it might be a faustian bargain but it seems like it's too good to pass up is, is that sort of what's going on or do they do these two i'm still going to call russia a world power do these two world powers I- I employ their influence differently generally what what are their playbooks and what and what are they looking at what regions and countries are they looking at right now particularly that the rest of us should at least be aware of and pay attention to so yeah they do have very different playbooks so china what do china first so china is trying economically and when the sort of the high to the belt and road initiative which is kind of you know for americans it, it's a kind of a version of the marshall plan that the us rolled that after world mm-hmm. war ii but effectively the idea is spending a bunch of money on things that people need um you know hoping that it pays off back and you know at the height of the belt and road initiative it was actually doing really well. They were buying a lot of influence and building schools and doing really well in countries like Tanzania and Kenya and Ethiopia. And, you know, the Chinese were doing well, but they started to lose grips when they did things like, you know, they go on to mine sites in the Democratic Republic of Congo and demand that no Congolese would be allowed to mine on that site. And then the Congolese would, you know, uh, <clears throat> forcibly remove the Chinese miners, uh, and that's the most PG way I can po- advertiser friendly way I can possibly say that. That's fine. Um, you know, what we found recently is that all, some of their investments are starting to fall through. So, particularly, you know, everyone points to Zambia is where it all went wrong. Um, you know, a lot of their investments just ended up in the wrong pockets. They got, you know, hey, we paid for the airport. Where's the airport? Oh, sorry, what money? I don't know what <laughs> money you talking about. Um, you know, a lot of it went missing. Uh, and China's now sort of scaled back a lot of its Belt and Road Initiative stuff to effectively core interests. So, you know, there was talks, you know, five years ago about, you know, China's going to build big pipelines from South Sudan to the sea, and now it's like, no, not, not a chance that's happening. Um, they are still invested, and China is, is starting to look at, you know, uh, with the Chinese middle class growing up and Chinese wages rising, they're starting to look at, okay, where can we actually outsource part of our manufacturing stuff with cheaper labor uh, labor prices. Uh, wow. And that is Africa. But they need to get a lot of infrastructure in place before they can do that. You know, with China, it's really easy to do business because it's all kind of, everyone's connected on road and rail and, you know, the government's, you know, one government to deal with, whereas, you know, it gets a bit dicey in a lot of these African countries. So China is effectively looking to, you know, uh, build up some of these African countries to take part of the, part of their economic chains. Uh, real low value stuff that are, you know, a bit of a case point. So effectively, China making Nike shoes, you know, the actual cutting of the sole or in the real sort of like real fiddly hand, hand done stuff is, you know, is very time consuming. It doesn't add that much value to the product. So right now they're trying to give that to Vietnam or Bangladesh or parts of India or Cambodia to make that bit cheaper. So effectively that bit of the shoe will be done in a really, really cheap labor country and then sent back to China to be done by Chinese people who have slightly higher wages. Uh, Africa is looking down that road because they have the cheapest labor. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a lot of infrastructure and transport involved there. When it comes to Africa, when it comes to um, Chinese investment, they've been pretty good because, uh, in some things, but they're also very much a, you know, if you're an African dictator and you need money and you go to the IMF or the World Bank, they will say, you need to make the following reforms before we're going to give you money. Right. You know, you need to actually have an election. You need to behave yourself and then we'll give you money. China doesn't care. China will just give you the money. So we're finding that a lot of these dictatorships are having their life extended by the fact China will be willing to give them a loan when no one else would. 
When it comes to Russia, they don't really have much money to loan out. What they do have are private military companies and military vehicles and expertise. So where we're seeing the Russians operating, particularly is guys like uh, Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, Mozambique, uh, where the Russians effectively will be giving contracts to their private military companies, particularly Wagner, uh, who will, you know, hey, you guard the president, make sure the president doesn't die, and any rebels come in, you blow them out of the water, and in exchange, we'll let you have, you know, free run on these mines. Uh, and that's what Russia does. Because Russia doesn't have the money. You know, Russia's GDP is the same size as Australia's. <laughs> yeah. not a, and Australia's not a particularly powerful country. I know we can we can probably beat Fiji in a war, uh, but I don't want to push out luck any further than that. Um, Take that, Fiji. Russia, they actually have lots of... <laughs> Sorry, Fiji. Um, you know, the Russians have been very big in operating as effectively security forces. Uh, because A, who else is going to defend these guys? And Russia wants to... Russia remembers quite well the sort of Soviet era where, you know, countries had that choice of do I deal with the Americans or the Russians and the Russians with the other power. Mm-hmm. They want to get back to that, where countries have that choice of who do I go with. Uh, and, yeah, Russia is kind of doing okay. I mean, the, the operations of Mozambique are looking more and more problematic each week. Um, the Central African Republic, the Russian forces in there, have done some real nasty things, but, you know, the dictator is still in Bangui, so I guess job well done. Um you know, it's it's a complicated thing. So effectively, Russia, China is going in with money and looking this completely economical, uh, and Russia's going in and going, "Hey, we're willing to be, you know, contract soldiers." So, so China is almost like the benevolent. They're, they're like the mob that loans you money, uh, but the interest rates aren't high. But but they're they're going to ask for favors. R- R- Russia's the muscle. They're they're coming in. We'll give you muscle, yep. but we're going to ask for favors. Um, so okay, so that that's uh, I guess they're just going with with what they've got. It, the, the amazing thing is that China, who you know, you always think about in this place of all the cheap labor that they are finding, they're outsourcing to yet even cheaper labor. I don't even know what that. I haven't. I can't. I haven't absorbed long enough to know if that means it's good for the Chinese people that their wages are higher or bad that they're losing this source of. Low, low wages to something. I, I, I can't distill that, but that's all right. About it's not really a question. It's more of pontificating out loud. So okay, so the yeah, last. Sort of like to, I could, in one sentence, just to, to sum up that that the whole concept. Yeah. You know, back to that shoe thing. You know, effectively, uh, you know, to cut out that the, the sole of the shoe will cost a, to cost China, a Chinese worker. Uh, let's call it three dollars in labor, and it will add six dollars of value to the product. But if they can get that done by someone living in, in Tanzania for 20 cents, that means they can still add $6 of value to the product, but get the labor cost down to 20 cents. Right. That's the real, real macroeconomics 101 of this. Yeah. And even, uh, I don't even know what the speed economics lecture, but yeah, it's, it's well, try, it again, it's capitalism. We're just trying to squeeze as much money out of this as we can. Well, everything at the end of the day is about resources, whether that's money, land, energy, whatever, whatever it is, it's resources, water. Um, so even if it costs them another dollar to get it back to China to to put together the rest of the shoe, it still cost a buck twenty, um, you know, and, and and so they still made three eighty per shoe on that versus three dollars per shoe. So all right, got it. That that makes some sense. All right. So we the last thing I want to ask you about was Armenia versus Azerbaijan. But before I forget, sort of like sort of, I, you know, I want to play a little bit. This is a little bit Garden of Doom. So you know, first of all, are there any like odd, weird stories that aren't quite news, but might be news or might count as news that the world should know about that you've come across 
that that just doesn't get covered and the answer to that might be no but if it's yes that'd be great to to share you know that or those bits and the other thing what is like a conspiracy theory that you don't think is a conspiracy that is that it's just a theory that, that like you sort of one that you particularly enjoy or think that there's something to it there's, there's so many um again i'm not i'm not a conspiracist but there's definitely some dots you connect um you know and, and again it's it's something sometimes a conspiracy theory starts and you go down the road and you find out yep okay we were right uh, you know a couple of years ago we were doing a you know digging into guyana and like the more we dug into that weird country the weirder things got and we end up finding out the cambridge analytica who had been worked on the brexit and the trump campaign uh, had done some work in guyana and we managed to get Brittany kaiser and start to work with those guys and find out that effectively there'd been some deals to help the president get in power and in exchange, ExxonMobil got a really nice plum contract out of this. Um, you know, this was a couple of years ago. You know, we really did a lot of investigating. My team did a really good job, and we managed to actually get a the uh, page of the contract with the president's signature on it. And we wow. dropped that, and everyone went, went, "Hey, the president took a deal with ExxonMobil." Um, the president went, uh, "No, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. No, you guys are lying. And you guys are liars." And then we released the contract with the signature on it. Fake um, news. <laughs> Which again, it's it started as a like, there's no way that's real, and then digging into it, oh yeah, okay, that was real. Um, but that took a lot of investigative journalism to do. Uh, you know, some conspiracy theories are really dumb. You know, DNA bombs that kill <laughs> Ukrainians but not Russians are just, you know, anyone who's been anywhere near that world will know that's impossible to do. It'd be like finding some sort of bomb that kills Americans but doesn't kill Canadians. It all can't. What are you talking about? Right. Um, but yeah, generally, there's every country has an interesting story, and the more time you spend in a country, the weirder you're going to find things. Um, you know, yeah, it is. There are too many to go through, and that's the whole point of the show. Is we do try and get into some weird conspiracy stuff. Not conspiracy, but like going down actual, you know, underlying questions that you know, a lot of people would think I think gloss over. Hmm. Is there a Nazi or space base in the center of Antarctica with the portal to the center Earth is populated by uh, maybe semi-evil or semi-divine giants? See, this is where I disconnect and pretend it's a bit, and then we have the X-Files music come on. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so that, that's, um, that's where you draw the yeah, line on the conspiracies. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're in Australia, so you're right yeah, there. You I, should, I, yeah. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think it is, but yeah, I've, I've, heard, weird, I've heard weirder conspiracies. Really? What's the weirder conspiracy? Mm. So you said I think that. the funniest one for me, I remember reading, uh, the funniest one I remember reading was reading a thread about, you know, someone was asking about the show, I think it was on Reddit, and someone was like, oh, he works for the, the Kyrgyz government, and he works for them, he's a Russian spy, and I saw him in Moscow three days ago, and I'm sitting here in my, in my jumper and shorts, being like, I'm pretty sure I'm not in Moscow at the moment, buddy. <laughs> um, so I don't usually respond to, you know, threads like that, but that one, that got my attention. So I, when you hear conspiracy theories about yourself and seeing people going, yeah, yeah, he definitely is. I've, I've seen him do this. I'm like, no, you haven't. I that, didn't do that. I haven't been to that country. Um, you know, it's always fun to read conspiracy theories about yourself. No, that, that'd be amazing. I, I, please, people make up conspiracy theories about me. This, this, this is amazing. <laughs> Uh, the only one who does that is is my ex-wife, and they're all because she's sure that I've, uh, <laughs> well, typical ex-wife stuff. So they're sure that I've hidden, you know, piles and piles of money somewhere away, even though we filed our taxes together for 20 years. So it's something that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. I should probably edit that out. But, 
Nah, I'll leave it. All right, all right. So anyway, I'm going to go about. I'm going to go about ten minutes left. So we'll need to we'll need to do a bit of a, a wrap up quickly. But yes, uh, fair yeah, enough. Uh, yeah, we'll Ar- the next question. Armenia, Azerbaijan. What's the difference between the two, and why do they hate each other so much? Mm-hmm. Oof, uh, they are so both of them are Soviet next Soviets. Um, the dip, you know Armenia is effectively majority Christian, and um, uh, Azerbaijan is majority Muslim. So. You know, this is, I've, I've done most of the ex-Soviet countries and spent a lot of time in this region of the world, and these two really hate each other. Um, it is incredibly amount of venom in, in this sort of, in this relationship. You know, you can go and have, you know, drinks at a bar with the average Georgian and Russian, with, you know, the Ukrainians and Russians, with Belarusians and Poles, with, you know, Estonians and Latvians, but Armenians and Naziris very much have a lot of hatred towards each other. Uh, and it's really nasty. You know, to, to sum up the situation that, it is in the moment. Effectively, you know, if you imagine it kind of, uh, you know, imagine a bit of a rectangle uh, on the, you know, there's a, on the bottom right hand, or bottom left hand corner, there's a little bit of Azerbaijan that is disconnected from the rest of Azerbaijan. That's called Najiba. And then kind of as a backwards P over that rectangle and down in a kind of drumstick shape is Armenia. That's Armenia proper. That's, that's what the UN would call Armenia. And then the rest of the rectangle is Azerbaijan. It goes right out. And effectively, Azerbaijan is almost a little brother to Turkey. It's the same way Canadians are kind of to the Americans. That's kind of how they look at each other. In sort of in between them is an area called Nagorno-Karabakh, which, you know, is an island. It was well, it's an, not an island because it's in land, but it's an island of Armenians living inside Azerbaijan, inside the international borders of Azerbaijan. So during the Soviet era, no one cared because there was free movement between them. Everyone just kind of got along, no problems. But then when the Soviet Union breaks down, everyone goes, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? And, you know, everyone was wondering, okay, well, do we want to leave our, you know, this huge uh, patch of Armenians at the mercy of an Azeri government that we don't know? Again, this is back in, like, 91. So in the chaos of the Soviet Union breaking down, the Armenians made a military push and took effectively all of Karabakh and the area around Karabakh. So rather than it being an island, it's connected as kind of a rectangle connected to Armenia. Uh, and it took about a sixth of Azerbaijan up. And they called that the Republic of Artsakh. And that's where we kind of sat until that 2020. You know, everything in these two countries' politics was about Artsakh you know, or about Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, for the Armenian point of view, to give you an idea, out of the last 13 prime ministers, something like 11 have been born in in Artsakh, which gives you an idea of how valuable they view that territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to Azerbaijan, everything, like every song they sing is about taking that place back. <laughs> so there's been a few, there's a few skirmishes over the years, everyone built up, it's kind of not a thing. And then in 2020, you know, the Azeri economy is doing really well, the Armenians not. You know, Armenia hasn't got much natural resources, uh, Azerbaijan has huge amounts of gas and oil. So. They effectively used Israeli drones, Turkish drones, you know, they bought PMCs in and they went for a huge offensive against uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And they took kind of most of the bits around Karabakh as well as about a half of proper Karabakh itself and left a bit of a rump state with a tiny little road that connects it to Armenia. And that's where we're at. So, you know, the Armenians were smashed in 2020. And it's it's a really... It was a dark day in Armenia. You know, it was, yeah, they still walk around with their hands, their heads held low. You know, and that's the trouble is now that where the border was staying, sitting before, it was, you know, in the fields and it was way out from where 
the cities and towns were. And now the border is effectively opening. The front line is now at the edge of Stepanaka, the capital of, of Nagorno-Karabakh. So rather than having three weeks to, you know, oh, well, the war started, everyone evacuate, the, mo the cannons of Azerbaijan are now pointed at the capital of Stepanaka. So the moment this war kicks off, we have about 10 seconds warning before the first people start dying. Wow. And there are being war crimes committed on both sides. It gets really nasty. And the only person guaranteeing this, you know, this whole situation right now is Russia. Russia is effectively trying to be friends with both sides and has got peacekeepers between them. But now Russia is getting more occupied with Ukraine and both sides, you know, Azerbaijan is looking at it and going, well, Armenia's pretty much on its knees. Do we, do we just finish the job off? Because what Armenia really wants is a free corridor to Nachivan which is that bit we talked about right at the start that's on the other side of Armenia. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you know, Armenia, uh, from left to right, Armenia, or sorry, from left to right, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Azerbaijan. They really want to be able to, be able to connect to that because right now they have to either drive all the way from Azerbaijan to Georgia to Turkey into Nachivan or uh, Azerbaijan, Iran into Nachivan. It's a pain in the ass for them. But there's, they really would love a corridor, but that would, that would require invading Armenia proper and that's where you know there's a difference between fighting over like disputed territory and fighting over actual you know UN recognized borders so there's a lot of sort of people in Armenia now watching that if, if Russia does manage to you know go for this war and change the borders and, and gets a bunch of Ukraine and the UN the international community just less about it Armenia uh, uh, Azerbaijan might be thinking they can get away with it in Armenia as well uh, because the again the Azeri economy is just so much you know, in the 1990s, the Azeri and the Armenian economies were roughly about the same, and now it's kind of like a six or seven to one. Um, so it's it's getting to a pretty dire point in the Caucasus, and the Armenians are very worried about what the next move is going to be. Yeah, everything is interconnected. All right, well, I, th I thank you very much for that. Folks, if you feel like you didn't get enough on any of these things, the good news is I pick topics off of his list of existing shows. So check out those existing shows and you get a much deeper dive with not just uh, Michael's voice. But uh, as far as I can tell, all of the shows always have three guests. There's like an overarching question and then a different expert addresses those questions in a fair amount of detail. Each segment tends to be about around 30 minutes. Um, and it's just excellent. And there's just, you know, probably several dozen other topics as well uh, that you get into. So make yourself smart, impress all your friends. Uh, Michael, is there anything other than the Red Corner or including the Red Corner that you want to promote or let people know about where they can help support you in some way, shape or form? That's right. The show is just called The Red Line. Um, I'm sorry, The Red Con but, Line. Yeah, it's, uh, Red Corner was a movie with Richard Gere. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I, I'll, I, I, if, you know, you're mistaken me if Richard Gere is the nicest thing anyone's ever said about my appearance, so I'll take it. Um, look, it's, it, The Red Line is a geopolitical show. Feel free to check it out if you want to hear very smart people, uh, me interviewing very smart people and, and talking about some interesting subjects. But again, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. I, you know, my uh, my lovely my lovely partner is uh, always sick of me talking about Central Asia. So whenever I get a chance to talk about it with someone, I always jump at the chance. Okay. Well, you're welcome back anytime. Hit me up. I may hit you up again. Uh, and especially if you find things that are like too odd to make it onto your show, but you really want to talk about them, I'll be your Huckleberry. Uh, and if you ever hear about Antarctica, I'm your Huckleberry again. And if you stumble upon a conspiracy <laughs> that is maybe too weird to report on, but you want to talk about it, 
Well, we, we can even pretend that you're not Michael Hilliard, that you're Hill Michael Yard. Um, <laughs> so very, very flex. This is not a journalism show. So we, we, our, our standards are very loose. So anyway, I can't thank you enough. I, I know that your time is precious. Really appreciate you doing great work. The Red Line, I can't apologize enough for that. The Red Line is an amazing show. Everyone okay. should check it out. Um, and thanks so much for being in the garden and doing. We'd love to have you again at some time and good luck and continue to the, to grow that show. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Thanks. Take care and uh, be well, be safe down there in Australia. I know you're getting into winter down there. It is indeed. Thank you so much for having me. I've, uh, I've got to finish editing an episode because my producer's waiting on it. <laughs> Vaya con Dios, my friend. Vaya um, con Dios. Message going. <laughs> I... Sounds good. Anyway, thanks so much for your time. And uh, if you have any, have any other questions or need me to uh, jump up with something else, let me know. You've got my, uh, got me on Twitter. Okay. You, you may regret that, but uh, yes, I'm definitely going to keep in touch. All right. Th <laughs> thanks so much. Have a, and, and happy yeah. Easter. Well, I guess it's Easter for you was yesterday. But anyway, happy holiday season to you and yours. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Talk soon. Okay, folks, just uh, hung up on, on Michael. Of course, I hit the wrong button and actually hung up on him, uh, which is not usually my intention. But I hope you found that enjoying. This is a little bit of a different type of Garden of Doom episode. If you like this kind of episode, let me know, and I'll go more into this type of direction because it's my show and I can, and, and I want to give you stuff that you like. I've started to look a little bit at data and analytics and and. It's sort of hard to come up with any conclusions, especially with garden views in there. But I have come up with a few, and <laughs> I'm not really surprised about this, but it's almost self-deprecating to myself. But the shows where it's more conversational, where we're just sort of talking about stuff, just sort of riffing about stuff with less expertise or authority, even if you don't agree that it's a, a hard science or hard factual topic, um, those shows seem to be more what you all, the audience, likes rather than the ones where I'm like 50% of the conversation. And I don't think that's about me. I think it's just that, you know, you, you'd sort of like having the topic versus the rambling. But let me know. Um, I'm at, at IcarusFellMD on Twitter. Uh, or you can find me at EvilDose at the Garden of Doom uh, or EvilDose at the Garden of Doom. Uh, also, there's a Garden of Doom Facebook page. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely happy to hear from anybody. Um, if you yell at me, I may not yell back. Uh, I may just ignore you, but uh, happy to get feedback. Anyway, uh, tell your friends about the show. Please share. Please subscribe. Please like. Um, give five stars. Give reviews uh, on Spotify and Apple. Spotify just added the review feature about two or three months ago. Uh, so that's very helpful. And... Check you out next week on The Garden of Doom with another fun and exciting episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. People moving out, people moving in. Why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you sure can't hide. Teacher. Segregation, determination.
rockets to the moon Kids growing up too soon Politicians say more taxes Will solve everything And the band played on top dollar when you can save big on your next holiday with Tripper Deal. With over 100 deals to choose from, there's something for everyone. Take off on a luxury escape to the Maldives. Discover the ancient wonders of Egypt, Jordan and Turkey. Or set sail through Alaska's magical glaciers. Visit tripperdeal.com.au today to discover your next holiday. Tripper Deal. Bucket list experiences at unbelievable prices.